0: Figuring out how Jesus could be fully God and fully man at the same time has been a challenge for theologians going back to the first century of the church. However, this difficult-to-grasp doctrine stands at the very center of the Christian faith and serves as the foundation for virtually every facet of Christian theology. My guest today is Stephen Wellam, and in our conversation he walks us through this difficult doctrine, often referred to as the hypostatic union explaining where we see it clearly taught throughout scripture. He reflects on the many heresies related to Jesus that have popped up through the centuries and highlights why all Christians would benefit from taking time to think carefully about Jesus being fully God and fully man, even if we'll never fully comprehend that fact. Stephen Wellam serves as professor of Christian theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and is the author of The Person of Christ, An Introduction, Crossway. Let's get started. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast. That's great to be with you. So before we get into the meat of our conversation today, I wonder if we could take a step back and just answer that question, the so what question. Why is it important for all Christians, not just theologians, not just pastors, but all Christians to understand the hypostatic union
1: to some extent well i mean the big picture would be to not understand the hypostatic union is to not fully understand who jesus is uh and to not understand him in terms of who he is the way the bible presents him as the one who is truly god truly man one person two natures and well, you know that's really getting at the hypostatic union is we don't have a savior mm. So we don't understand who God is, right? Because God is triune and Jesus is the eternal son of God. But we also, with the incarnation, need a redeemer. And what's necessary to understand the nature of the hypostatic union is to give us that redeemer who can meet our needs. So that's the largest sort of picture, the biggest picture of why this is so important, we do not have the Jesus of the Bible and we do not have a savior. Mm. So it really gets to the heart. This doctrine gets to the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. Absolutely. I mean, you cannot have Christian faith is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We're justified by grace through faith in him. And if we don't understand who he is, uh, we don't have uh, the Jesus of the Bible. Mm. And if we don't have the Jesus of the Bible, we do not have Christian faith, and we do not have salvation.
0: Okay. Well, then let's, let's dive in there. Just to, as a first question, uh, if you were sitting down with a fifth grader in, and given the task of explaining the doctrine of the hypostatic union, and we'll get into those terms and kind of why we use right. those terms in a little bit, but how would you try to explain this idea to that young person?
1: Yeah, I mean, a fifth grader, obviously, you're, everyone's at a different age, and now you're dealing with someone very young. So I think what you need to do is to stick closely to the biblical teaching and the biblical parameters and then sort of start fleshing that out. Mm. So uh, think of John's gospel, right? So the beginning of, of John 1, uh, as you think of the hypostatic union, in the beginning was the Word. And, of course, Word in John would be tied to the Son of God. So it's a title for the son, but he's the son of God in relation to the father. So we want to communicate to the fifth grader that the son of God, the word of God is the one who's from eternity. So you're looking at he's the eternal son. And then you'd have to start unpacking Hmm. father, son, and then Holy Spirit relations. In the beginnings, the word, the word is with, right? So automatically he's with God. We're working through the eternal Son, who is the one who is in relation to the Father, and then in John's Gospel, the Spirit. And then you have the word was God. So this word who is from eternity, this Son who is from eternity, uh, who is in relation to the Father, is God equal with the Father. So we're now unpacking the one true God, who is Father, Son, Son. And Holy Spirit, Mm. right? So those are the foundational building blocks to get to the triune nature of God. And then, of course, as you work through the text, this Son, this Word, who is from eternity, who is truly God, who is God equal with the Father, the one true God, who is Father, Son, and Spirit, this Word, this Son, became flesh. So that the Son of God took to himself language that we would also use is he assumed. Uh, a human nature, right? So what's flesh mean? Well, he became human. So this word from eternity now is human. And of course, in what you have to communicate to a fifth grader or anyone, is that uh, we have to preserve from the very beginning of scripture all the way through the Bible, is that God is God and creatures are creatures. So what we call the creator-creature distinction, so that when the son, the word assumes flesh, we then have to start speaking about him being truly God, truly man two natures right so we're introducing Mm. concepts and vocabulary that the text itself gives us
0: extra biblical
1: terms though extra biblical terms but they're coming right from how do you explain the word the son in relation to the father assuming our humanity without then saying the bible says god is god humans are humans creatures are creatures they're two different things so that we then speak of him assuming a human nature that is different Mm. than his divine nature and so then we then start working from there but working through the biblical parameters, taking them to the text, and then showing how the text then moves to theological understanding.
0: So why start with the text and not with, say, a confession, a historical confession, or a creed, where Christians throughout the ages have tried to synthesize the text in a way that's really easy to understand, really concise. Why do you think, with a young person, or even maybe just a young Christian of any age, why would you prefer going right to the biblical text?
1: Well, I mean, you you could, I mean, sort of at the presentation or sort of the terms of teaching pedagogy type of thing. Yeah. I mean, you could start with the confessions and then work to the text. I prefer, I mean, obviously we are not coming to the text independent of the whole history of the church and the confessions of the church, right? So that's impossible. Yet what I want to communicate, whether it's to a fifth grader or anyone Mm. that our confessions are grounded in scripture. So, again, picking up the priority, right? So, a great Reformation principle of, of sola scriptura. Scripture is our final authority. Confessions are secondary authorities, and they become authoritative for us as they are consistent with scripture. So, eventually, you have to work from the confessions to scripture, scripture to the confessions. I think starting my experience with people is to take them to scripture, to show them that this is a biblical truth, and then bring in the confessions, right? So even as we, you know, I discussed just John, uh, the Word who's with God, who is God, and I'm starting to unpack Father, Son, bring in Spirit. I'm already doing so in light of the confessions. Mm. But it's also I'm trying to show that this is true to Scripture. Because eventually, if you start with the confessions, you've got to show it's true to Scripture. If you work from Scripture, you've got to show that the church actually understood this correctly. Yeah. And and so it's a both-and but uh, I do think that people will resonate better to say, oh, it's, there it is, right? It's there yeah. in Scripture. So
0: I think one of the dangers with starting from the text only and maybe ignoring the testimony of church history and these confessions is that one re- response to the, the textual evidence that we have would maybe be to say, oh, this is just inconsistent. Right. Scripture is confused. There's different things being said about this person, Jesus, all over the place. They don't actually fit together. Right. But the church has, has wrestled with these things and actually found a way that they do fit together.
1: Yeah, yeah and, and, and you know, even in, in saying how the Scripture maybe is confused and people could have that, again, that tells you even as you are thinking about approaching the text, you already have to have a proper view of Scripture in place, right? Mm. So, so this is where there's you, you can't separate exegesis from uh, sound theological conclusions that are tied to the history of the church. Sound theological conclusions... Uh, have to be shown to be true to Scripture. Uh, We have to have a doctrine of Scripture in some sense, even as we approach the text to say, this isn't inconsistent, Mm -hmm. it is coherent. Thus, we have to make sure we then put all the pieces together in a consistent, coherent fashion. It's not uh, acceptable to say, well, this text contradicts this one, and uh, we're going to ignore it, or say it's just hopelessly contradictory. That's not an option for us. So, I mean, that's how the church has said we have to take all of the biblical data put all of it together and the church's confessions help us do that. Mm. But we still in it, you know, again, if we want to start with the confession, that's fine, but we still have to show how is this grounded in the text right? Yeah. and then go back and forth. So we need both. And you can't just sort of say text alone without the confessions, that would be, you know, almost uh, trying to reinvent the wheel. There's no sense in doing that, but it's on these issues of particularly Trinity and Christology that we have most agreement and we are most convinced that, the, you know, say the Nicene Creed or the Chalcedonian definition and so on that gives us our Christology true to Scripture. Mm.
0: So you've already referenced a couple of these terms, but when it comes to the hypostatic union, the key terms there are person and nature. So we talk about Jesus having or the Son having it being one person with two natures. And I want to just talk through what, what we mean by those words, because those are technical terms in the history of theology that, that have a particular meaning that might not be intuitive to people today. So when we say that Jesus, uh, the Son of God, has, is one person, what does that
1: mean? That's a question that the, the church has wrestled with, and I think there's been a uh, pretty good consensus on what person means, but these are very, very difficult areas. But when we speak, first of all, of the hypostatic union, just that word hypostatic Uh, is what you've referenced in terms of person really is it comes from the Greek that just what we now translate in English person so when we speak of the hypostatic union of Christ we're referring to the person of the son who has now assumed a humanity Mm. but to the concept of person right so person and nature is a necessary distinction to uphold uh, think of all first of all in terms of the triune God right there's one true and living God uh, who is one being, right? And that's the concept of nature. Hmm. So nature refers to God and all of his godness, right? And his we, essence is another is term. Es- essence, nature, being, the one being of God, the one essence of God. And when we think of nature, we often think in terms of what God is in the case of God, or we could apply to anything, what a thing is, but what God is. And usually we describe that in terms of God's being, in terms of his attributes, Person now is referring to the threeness in God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? So we could just stay with the language of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's three who share the same nature, the same essence of God. Person is the term that Thou was trying to describe what the Father is, what the Son is, and what the Spirit is. I think the best way to understand person is that the Father, Son, and Spirit are three Subjects of the nature. Now, subject, you have to be careful with that term that we don't load into that what we think of. They have individual uh, minds and wills and actions and so on. No, the three. And, and, and
0: those, are, those are crystal, are, those are Trinitarian heresies that, that the church has sort of rejected over through the centuries.
1: That's exactly right. So, so the Trinitarian formulation would be the Father, Son, and Spirit are persons defined in terms of their relations to one another. The Father's the Father because he's in relation to the Son. He is the one who begets the Son. The Son is the Son in relation to the Father because he is the one who is from the Son or generated or begotten, and the Spirit is the one who's from Father and Son. So it's speaking of them as subjects, yet the subjects exist in or the language of subsist in a nature. So the nature is where you have all of the attributes, will, and so on. So the Father, Son, and Spirit share the same divine nature, right? The nature is undivided, right? So the the Father has the same identical nature as the Son. The Son has the same identical nature as the Father and the Spirit, yet they are distinguished by their relations to one another. So they are subjects of the nature, or the technical term would be they are the way that they are subsist in the nature sometimes the language of modes of subsistence but you have to be careful this is not modalism yeah. that the father son and spirit are just the same thing in a different phase no the father is real the son is real the spirit is real they're in relation to one another and they share the same identical divine nature so you're upholding threeness and oneness right the one true god who is father son and spirit the son is the second person of the Godhead. The Son is the one who has the same divine nature, so he is fully God. He has all that the Father has, all that the Spirit has, all of the attributes, yet he is distinguished by his relation to the Father and the Spirit. And that's the language of person. So subject, I think, is the best way of getting at that. Mm. The Son acts, but he acts through... The divine nature in relation to the Father and Spirit. And the same is then said of the Father and the Spirit. And so that's how person is being conceived. Now, let me just add quickly, uh, we have to be careful that when we speak of person, we don't bring in sort of contemporary conceptions of person. Right. So when we use the, way, the term person today, we often refer to, if I look at someone and say, look at that person, I'm referring to an entire individual yeah, in in biblical, you know, in theological categories, to refer to an individual, we be referring to their person and nature, but we often both, then, yeah. yeah, both. But we now have person referring to the individual, or sometimes people think of person in terms of their soul or personality traits. That's not what we're meaning in uh, the Trinity or in Christology. So the person is the subject of the nature. The persons are in relation to one another, yet they. are are God equal. They share the same attributes, the same divine nature, uh, so that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, that they're distinguished by their relations to one another.
0: So as you've just laid out, with the Trinity, we have one nature, three persons. But then when you go to that second person, the Son, he then has one person still, but two natures. So it... In, in terms of how we understand these terms, would the natures, uh, the, the two uh, expressions of nature be consistent there, where when it comes to God's nature in the Trinity is the same kind of thing as the two natures, it, is the term in both of those contexts meaning the same thing?
1: Well, the term, well, it's, it's, it's not meaning the same thing in the sense that a divine nature is not the same as a human right. nature. Yet the term nature is referring to, in the case of God, what is God, right? And we then say, here is the being of God. Now, God's being is utterly unique. It's singular, right? Mm. We speak of this, uh, he's the God who is independent, self-sufficient. He has, he's simple in the sense that he has all of his attributes, right? He is the undivided God. So that there's no classification of God that he fits into, and then you can have other sort of examples of God, There's no
0: other being that has
1: a single nature but multiple persons. That's exactly well, that, right, and there's no there's no other um, nature of God that God shares in, right? Mm. Now, you and I, now when we come to uh, human nature, so we're using nature in the sense of what is a human, right? So in the case of a divine nature, what is God? But we have to distinguish him and told his, his utter uniqueness. When we come to a human nature, we're asking what is a human? and But in the case of us, right, we then are particular instances of humans, right? Mm -hmm. So you and I are human, yet there's two of us, right? And we're two separate humans. That's not the case when we speak of God's nature. There's no two separate Mm. uh, divine natures and so on. There's one that is uh, unique and, and so on. So when we then say that the Son of God, the Word became flesh, right? All that God is in the Son. So the Son is the one who is the second person, the subject uh, of the nature, so it's the Son, not the Father, or the Spirit, who takes to himself, assumes a human nature, a human nature that is now what we are, right? So that's why you have two natures that, even in the Son of God, in the incarnate Son, there's still a creator-creature distinction. God is not blended with the human nature. Mm. It remains distinct. You can't have, in biblical thought, uh, the blending of God and and humanity. This is not kind of pantheism or... Yeah.
0: Because Jesus' human nature was created. That's a hard line distinction between that and his divine nature. Is that correct? Yeah,
1: in the human nature, it comes to exist, right? Yes. The virgin conception. At the moment of the conception where the, the Spirit of God overshadows Mary, what is created comes to exist is a human nature. And we often identify a human nature with what is a human nature. We often speak of something that is body, Right? So material and also immaterial. Right, So we often will speak of body and soul. So what does the Son of God take to himself or assume uh, in that moment of conception? He assumes a human body and a human soul, a human nature. And in that human nature, the Son of God acts. Right, The Son of God is able to live. He is able to act as a human. He is able to think of Luke 2, 52, Uh, The Son of God grows in wisdom and in stature, right? So in that human body, he grows, right? So he was an embryo, and then nine months, and uh, that he was born in terms of that humanity. But it's a distinct nature from his divine nature. It's not as if the divine nature is growing. Mm. God remains all that he is, yet the Son of God, the person of the Son, now has two natures. So in both natures, he is able to now live, act. He's always acted and lived as the divine son. Now he's able to, in assuming a human nature, act through that human nature and have a full human life, full human actions, which becomes very, very important for us. We need that kind of redeemer. We mm. need one who will act on our behalf and uh, and, and represent us, obey for us, and ultimately uh, redeem us. Yeah, we
0: need a human redeemer. Right. So maybe to help us understand a little more of what you're saying here, why would you say it's incorrect for us to say that, that Jesus was half God, half man?
1: Well, because you have some notion that half God means uh, he's not fully fully who he is as God, right? Well, no, he is uh, with the Father and Spirit, all that God is. Half God sort of thinks, well, he's, uh, something's missing. He's there.
0: half as God as the Father is yes, or something. No,
1: he's, he's, he's all that God is, right? The fullness of deity resides in him, right? So Colossians 2.9 and, and, and so on, right? Picks these truths up, right? So he's not just half God, he is fully God, right? So the language of the confessions are saying truly or fully, right? All that God is, he is, shares that with the Father and Spirit. So there's nothing half. Mm. And then when you say half man, you sort of say, well, he's the God man, yes, but he's fully human, right? He's truly human. There's not, again, the notion of half, I think, conveys that he is not fully human or he's sort of half. So what you're saying is he is the one who is fully God, truly God, and truly man. All that we are, he is, obviously other than sin. All that God is, he's always been. And so we have to keep, that's why the the language of the church is not sort of half-half. It's truly, fully, all that God is, all that we are.
0: And I think this is where we start to get to the the mind-bending stuff, where you start to try to figure out, what does it mean to be fully human, and what does it mean to be fully God, and how can those two things coexist in the same person? Right. It feels like there are qualities of those two natures that are contradictory with right. each other. Um, so we'll kind of get into that more as we, we go. Well, Theologians sometimes say that the incarnation was an act of addition, not subtraction, and that kind of is relevant here. What, what do they mean by that, and why does that help us to make sure we're thinking rightly about
1: this idea? Well, because when they say, I mean, Philippians 2 is often... You know, a text, and, and even John 1.14, the word became flesh, or Philippians 2, the one who is in the very form, nature God, did not consider that to be clung on to, but he humbled himself, and he, he, the, the humbling, the, mm-hmm, empty the language emptying language there, is, is that he took to himself, so this idea of taking, right? So what they mean by taking is, is that he adds to himself, right? And what's he add? He adds a human nature, Right So he adds a second nature. So what he's always always been from eternity as the divine son, he now in uh, as the divine son, assumes that humanity, and the language of taking is 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 tied to the language of assumption, right? He assumes he takes that to himself, and in that humanity he then lives, mm. acts, and so on. So but he's, he's not getting rid of his divinity in doing that. No, no, so there are there are some in the history of the church that have rightly been rejected as out of the bounds or heretical, yeah, uh, where you know he in, in in the incarnation the son of god sets aside his divine nature which is an impossible what does that mean concept right you couldn't be god anymore or you have him setting aside maybe certain attributes or the of god. the use yeah. of those attributes well that's a, yeah that's that gets into a different and and i would reject that too but the mm. first sense of you know the son of god this is the canonic views that showed up in in the 19th century he sets aside His divine nature—that was rare—but some will say he sets aside, say, his omnipresence, or he sets aside his all-powerfulness, his omnipotence, or his omniscience, his all-knowing. Yet the problem is, is that the divine nature is not something that you can set attributes aside. Yeah. God is all of His attributes. God is simple. That's the doctrine from the language of simplicity, right? God is all of His attributes. You can't turn them off, turn them on, type of thing. He is all of this. (laughs) It's
0: not a switchboard where He can flip off that. Omniscience attribute for a little while. That's
1: that's exactly right. So in the assumption or the taking to himself, he's not setting aside anything. He remains fully who he's always been from eternity in the fullness of the triune life, yet he now takes to himself, he assumes a humanity, and so there's two. Now those natures don't compete with one another. Uh, the, you have what God is, what the creature is, yet the Son of God as the person, the subject, the second person in that way now becomes the subject of the human nature. So, if,
0: going back to the, the idea of not setting aside any attributes, let's go right to that core attribute that Jesus and what he did on this earth seems to mess up in some way. So, that idea of immortality God cannot be killed, God cannot, be, cannot die, and yet Jesus dies on a cross. And so, how, how do we understand? Take that as an example to right. explain how, the, how could Jesus, the Son, die and yet. Still be God and not have laid aside okay, that immortality.
1: Right. Well, and in, and in fact, you have in, in Acts twenty where Paul can refer to God shedding His blood, mm. right? Which which, he which says which God, which, yeah. yeah, it says God, and of course, it's referring to the Son of God. But you then say, well, how does God, who doesn't have blood, shed His blood? Type of thing, right? So these are crucial issues, and and this is why the two natures is so important to to affirm, and and why you know, when it says. The word became flesh, he's assuming a human nature that has its own integrity, mm. that is not blended with the divine nature and so on. So when you come to understand such things as, you know, Jesus dying for us as God the Son, what does that mean? Well, the Son of God, because he takes to himself a human nature, it's in that human nature that he now experiences death. And of course, it, when we experience death, we have a body-soul separation our bodies are put in the grave we continue to exist it's not that his Mm -hmm. human soul doesn't exist he continues even as the divine son to exist in that human soul yet it's he sheds his blood through his humanity Mm -hmm. now as the church has put that together right we have to affirm not only the two natures full deity full humanity but it's important and this is um, a phrase that comes back which is very uh, important for us to understand, is that there is a communion or a communication of who he is in his natures to his person. So the subject, the person of the Son, is the subject of both natures. What's true of those natures is true of the Son of God because he's the subject of both natures. Mm. So this is how Scripture can say God shed his blood, right? Who is dying for us? The Son of God, who is God, right? He's God the Son. Yet he dies for us and sheds his blood in his humanity, but what's true of his human nature is true of him as the person. So the Son of God experiences death, dies for us, accomplishes our redemption in his humanity. The phrase that has come through the history of the church is, this is called, in Latin, it's called the communicatio, the communion or communication idiomatum of prop, you know, you get the word idioms from this, but Mm. the idea of attributes, properties, so that what is true of his deity is true of him as the person. What's true of his humanity, because the person has assumed his humanity, a human nature is true of his person. So Mm. think of uh, John 8, uh, 58. Jesus can stand before the religious leaders and say, before Abraham was, I am. And that I am is, is picking up the name of Yahweh. And they look at him and say, you're not even 50 yeah. years old yet. Yeah, we remember when you were born. Yeah, so, so, so he was born. He assumed a human nature that came to exist. He does have a birth certificate, if they did birth certificates, <laughs> uh, in, in the first century type of thing in Bethlehem. But what's true of... His uh, human nature is true of him, what's true of his divine nature is true of him. So he can truly say, I am Yahweh. Yeah. I but, am but
0: what's true of his human nature is not true of his divine nature. That's exactly right. So there's a there's a distinction there, but they because the person is singular, he can through his person have both of those things be true about him. he both
1: preexisted and he also was born. That's right. So the Chalcedonian definition, right, in clearly saying the person now, in assuming a humanity exists, subsists in two natures. Those natures are not blended, right? There's a creator-creature distinction. Uh, you could not have a human nature and a divine nature blended. They're two different. That's
0: probably how we typically, that might be the intuitive way we think about this, especially we read the scriptures and and there are terms like he became flesh, the word became flesh, that, that has this idea of like transformation or something. And then we see the stories of Jesus in the gospels and it, he does seem like human, but not, Exactly like us, he's performing miracles. He's raise, rising from the dead, um, but he also uh, so so. It's easy to kind of fall into that idea of there's this third kind of nature that well, he and, seems and, to have. And I think
1: you're exactly right, and I think people think of Jesus as this is sort of the half half God, half man notion mm-hmm. that we were talking about, a kind of hybrid, right? And then of course the early church rejected that as one of the major. Christological uh, false teachings or heresies, and it was, it was known as Eutychianism or monophistism, where there's mono one, physis which is nature. There's sort of a blended one nature. So as a result of the incarnation, now you have a kind of hybrid. Well, no, that denies creator-creature distinction. That makes him then no longer God. And also
0: no longer human. And no longer human. Yeah.
1: And, and, and so the church has been very, very careful, right, to preserve mm. from, you know, the whole Bible, right, God is God. Humans are humans, yet the Son of God assumes a humanity, and and even the language I think is helpful, and you have to be careful with it. But I mean, the Son of God in that humanity, it's it's almost functions as a kind of instrument for him in the sense of mm. he's fully human. I mean, he's living, but he's acting through it, mm-hmm. right? And 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 so when he's acting through it, you have to maintain simultaneously that he's acting through both natures. Now that's hard for us to to grasp, right? But you do have biblical warrant for this i mean you think of colossians 1 uh, 15 through 17 so who is this son well he is the image of the invisible god i think that's referring to his deity divine nature firstborn over all creation which in that context means he's the creator of all things he's the ruler of all things he's not part of the creation he's that which is over because in him and through him all things have come to exist yet then you have him sustaining all things right he sustains all things by providence, right? Well, the emphasis in Colossians 1.17, it's found in the perfect tense. So he has not only sustained all things from the past, from the beginning of creation, but he continues to sustain all things, which is tied now to him even as the incarnate one. Mm. So this Jesus, who is truly God, truly man, in his deity, sustains all things with the Father and Spirit— He doesn't do that in his humanity he does that in his deity Hmm. he still continues to be all that he's been there's no change there in terms of his divine nature and who he is in terms of his divine life yet in assuming a human nature he's now able to live a fully human life and we have to bring both of those together Hmm. and if we don't hold both of those together we either have some kind of hybrid or we have him setting aside his divine attributes Uh, some may even have setting aside the function of those attributes, but that doesn't jive well with Colossians one seventeen because obviously the Son continues to stay in the universe. He's doing that outside of his humanity in the sense of he's he's fully God. Um, this is known in the history of the church as the extra right. He's outside of yet he continues to live, and all that he does is also through his human nature. Mm-hmm. So you have a truly one who is what I like to say, God the Son who's incarnate or the God Man.
0: Yeah, so theologians and scholars will sometimes refer to, they'll talk about the Son in in terms of according to his human nature or his divine nature. They'll say the Son died according to his human nature, the Son upholds the universe by the word of his power according to his divine nature. How important is it for Christians to speak like that, to make sure we're using, we're including those kinds of words? It seems like scripture is less perhaps careful or less precise sometimes in how the language is used. Um, just what advice would you give to Christians who want to keep straight on these things, but maybe don't always know how they should talk about it?
1: Yeah. I mean, excellent, uh, you know, point because we do have to keep them distinct yet. I think your observation is, is that often in scripture, I mean, I think it is keeping it distinct yet. It's, it's presenting. So scripture is presenting us with Jesus, Right. right? Who is this Jesus? Well, the Jesus is the one who is the son from eternity, who is with the father, and the Spirit, who is fully God, who assumes our humanity. The Word became flesh. The Son uh, took on our humanity, right? So he is presented all the way through the Gospels as the divine Son who's human, the divine Son incarnate, right? So it doesn't always parcel out for us, oh, here's deity, here's humanity. That's now, rightly so, us now stepping back and saying, well, if he is the eternal Son who has assumed our humanity, we do have to speak now in terms of truly God, truly man. Mm. So we do have to say, according to his divine nature, according to his human nature, it's the Son who acts through both natures, yet the sun acts uh, in both natures differently, right? So that what we call according to or true to his divine nature, human nature, is called reduplication because you have two natures. Huh. Another or, another
0: technical term that.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, but it's it's very important. So um, the Son of God before Abraham was I am. Well, who's speaking? The Son of God is speaking. Right. The person of um, uh, of Christ is the eternal Son of God from eternity. He's speaking, but he's speaking through human vocal cords, right? He's speaking through a human nature, but he's speaking now not in terms of his humanity, right? His humanity came to exist. He's speaking as the Lord, who is the eternal Son, who is Yahweh from eternity. So you'd have to say that's according to his divine nature. Before Abraham mm. was, I am. right. Yet he can turn and say to his disciples, he can have that conversation and go and say, let's get uh, some food, I'm a little hungry, and uh, I need to take a nap. <laughs> right? And you say, well, who's speaking? The Son of God is speaking. But he's speaking not in terms of Uh, he's tired in his divine nature, or he's hungry in his divine Mm. nature. He's speaking as the one who is uh, truly man, who lives a fully human life simultaneously with living ultimately a fully divine life. Yet it's the one person who's doing so. We don't have two persons. We have one subject, one person, the divine son, who is acting through both natures. And so the reduplication is very, very important. The term that's often used uh, is that we, when we come to the text, we have to sometimes do what's called partitive exegesis. Partitive, simply picking up the idea that he has two natures. So this is according to his deity. Mm. This is according to his man humanity. That's perfectly legitimate, absolutely necessary. But we also are reminded that it's the one Son, the one Person of the Son, who's acting in both natures. Mm.
0: So it's okay to just to say Jesus, Jesus does this. The Son does the, does all of this, and not always. Even if we need to be able to do it, we don't always have to speak in a way that partitions out oh, which nature this is according to. Yeah, I think,
1: I think that's right, and I think that's the way Scripture often is presenting him. He's presenting, here's Jesus, he's acting, he's saying to Lazarus, come forth, uh, and raises him from the dead. But as we then, in, in, we try to understand the text as we do theology in the sense of faith-seeking understanding. We're receiving all that Scripture says, but we say, well, how do I make sense hmm. of how a human uh raises the dead right uh in particularly in that context he's not just acting as uh, you know elijah of old who yeah. you know the spirit of god is just sort of acting upon him this is the eternal son in relation to the father and by the spirit who's speaking it's you know just before that as before he raises lazarus i am the resurrection and life i mean this is in a different category than just sort yeah. of a profitable. He's claiming
0: it's his own power that's doing
1: this. Yes, his own power that's doing it. Now, he's doing it always when we think of Trinitarian, he's doing it in relation to the Father by the Spirit. So it's not as if we don't say he's not acting in relation Mm -hmm. to the other persons of the Godhead, yet it's the Son of God who's acting in power to say Lazarus comes forth, but he's acting in both natures. Uh, And it's a divine act, yet he's speaking in human vocal cords. He's gesturing possibly his hand and Mm -hmm. saying, come forth. Um, and and he's so he's human. He's the human one who is acting and speaking. Uh, yet he's doing so as the divine son because the divine son is the subject of both natures. Mm. So uh, we we're talking here, and we, we've introduced a lot
0: of somewhat technical terms. But as you've said before, those are helpful. Those are important for understanding these things. I wonder if you could explain it briefly, make the case for why it is worth for Christians, normal Christians, lay Christians who go to church on Sunday, go to some secular job during the week, have kids, they've got soccer practice, why is it worth it for them to take the time, take a little bit of time and hard work to understand some of the language we've been using today and actually try to parse out these different nuances to be as accurate as possible?
1: Yeah, I mean, great, I mean, great question. I mean, you have to take the time to do it because um, this is what's necessary to know God properly according to his word, to have the kind of, as we began with, the kind of redeemer without thinking through these issues, inevitably you're going to end up in error, right? You're going to draw false conclusions. Why is that so serious? Well, because it eventually, if it doesn't give us the Jesus of the Bible, it doesn't give us the kind of redeemer that we need, right? So why must we take our time to do this? Because faithfulness to God's word, faithfulness to understanding who God is, faithfulness to understanding who Jesus is requires that we do so, right? Mm -hmm. The very scriptures themselves demand that we reflect upon them, right? They're they're in some sense forcing us, or sometimes the language today is that they're pressuring us, right? Mm. The language of pressure or forcing, right? I, I have two texts that that stand side by side. How do I put those together? How do I say that he's the eternal son, yet he grows in wisdom, stature, favor with God and man. I have to introduce, and the church has found it necessary to introduce vocabulary Uh, We often call it language, grammar, extra biblical terminology that helps us put the pieces together so that we rightly understand the whole counsel of God. If we don't do that, inevitably we pick and choose certain biblical teaching, which leads us to error, right? And that's why it's absolutely necessary. And the church has done this carefully, faithfully, and, and as with any kind of discipline. I mean, you think of even just at the... The sciences, right? If you are learning physics or you're learning calculus, there's a there's a language that one has to learn. There's a discipline that has to be studied. If we are willing to do that at the creaturely level, to understand the, how God has made His world, how much more should we be willing to do that at you know knowing God Himself and knowing uh, who the Son of God is and knowing who our Redeemer is? It's absolutely necessary. And if we don't do it, inevitably Air creeps in. Mm. Maybe as a last question, my sense is
0: that some people, maybe including some Christians, uh, might view this somewhat hard to understand mystery. Uh, this I mean, this is one of what well, is arguably but, the core mystery yeah. of the Christian faith. Um, Absolutely, as maybe a bit of a liability for Christians, they might wonder why would God choose to do it this way? Why would he Why would he ordain that this was how salvation would be accomplished? it feels so confusing it feels so counterintuitive and so maybe even contradictory in some ways have you ever wondered that have you ever asked that bigger question why would god do it this way what have you found
1: well that question has has been asked from the very beginning right uh and the church has reflected on that and there's a good good answer to it right Mm. but i mean athanasius uh early on in the history of the church on the incarnation is really asking a number of things but he's asking why did the Son of God take on our humanity, become incarnate? Anselms, in, um, in the Middle Ages, his famous book, Why the God-Man, uh, Cur Deus Homo, Why the God-Man, mm. is asking that very question, right? Yeah. And I think the biblical answer, now we could probably, this isn't going to be solely everything we could say, but at the heart of the answer is, unless there is the divine Son who becomes human, uh, we have no Redeemer And the salvation that the Bible describes would not be possible, right? This is what's necessary for us to experience justification before God, reconciliation with God, and so on. So so let's flesh that out a bit more, right? This is why it's so important to go back to the storyline of the Bible, the parameters of the Bible. And so we begin in a garden, and we begin with Adam, right? Adam, I would argue, is the representative of the human race, right? I would say there's a covenant here. People dispute that. But I would say there's a covenant relationship here. He defines our humanity, right? In Adam, unfortunately, due to his sin, we all die.
0: You, you, my side note, you wrote a book about this yes. in case anyone's that's,
1: interested in it. That's, that's right.
0: It's called Kingdom um, Through Covenant. Kingdom
1: Through Covenant, right? And, and trying to work through these areas and, and, and reform theology has, has done this as well. But, but Adam was called not only as our representative, but the entire human race, right? We are called to know God, to be in relation to God, and to obey God, right? And obedience isn't some, you know, without love and worship. I mean, it's our, our full devotion to God, right? God demands from us perfect obedience, right? He demands that we obey him. We love him. Think of the great commandment, you know, love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Adam doesn't do that. We don't do that. God doesn't set aside that command and that demand. Right? So in the end, Genesis 3.15 gives us a hint that in order for sin to be reversed, in order for redemption to come, there must come a seed of the woman. There must come a human. There must come a greater Adam, right? I mean, that whole storyline runs right through the entire Bible, the seed. Why must he be human? Because Adam, as our covenant head and representative, did not obey. We need Obedience. We must obey, and ultimately, we need one to obey for us. So, think of this in terms of the priestly theme, right? The priest is the one who represents us, the one who's from us, right? All of that is very, very important. The Son of God must take on our humanity. He must, in that humanity, obey for us, render covenantal obedience, do for us in 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 obeying what we could not do and did not do, right? Mm. So that really picks up strongly. He must, as a human, represent us. It's tied to the new covenant relation. He must act as our covenant head. He must obey us he, he, for us. He must keep the law, right? Uh, he comes under the law to obey the law. Those are crucial themes. We need a great high priest who is from us, identifies with us, and also able to represent us, right? That's a crucial theme. But you say, why deity? Hmm. Well, we have to think of what's sin, right? Sin is violation of God's command and not rendering perfect obedience but sin also is before God right our sin before God right is a debt right it's it's a penalty God cannot just say you know the son of God has obeyed for you we'll just let your sins go right uh, no God is the judge God is holy and just and righteous we've sinned against him we violated his very moral character right he is the judge of the universe the The law of the universe in that sense, right? We've sinned against him, and only God can solve his own problem in the sense of how does he forgive us apart from fulfilling and satisfying his full demand for a satisfaction for sin, right? We call this, in in the end, penal substitution, right? Christ must become our substitute to pay our penalty, our penalty before God, which is an absolute demand. Only God can forgive sins. Only God can meet his own demand. And so we need a divine redeemer to, in his humanity, obey for us to keep the covenant, and we also need one to take his own demand upon himself. Mm. Even if you had a perfect representative, uh, he couldn't pay for the sins that we owe God. And of course, this is what Anselm, this is what the early church thought this through as well, Athanasius, Anselm, the reformers, post-reformers. We need one who is truly God, truly man, uh, the one who can bring about a justification before God because he meets God's own demand because he's God. He's God the Son, mm. and also is able to represent us. That's its importance, right? Without God the Son incarnate, without the Son of God from eternity who's taken our humanity, we have no Redeemer. And and the Bible gives us an exclusive Savior. Why alone can Jesus save us? Because this is the one who alone can meet our need. Mm-mm. And and that's why the gospel is exclusive. Mm -hmm. Uh, The gospel says there is no redeemer other than this one who is the hypost—you know—in terms of hypostatic union, one person, two natures. Apart from this, what we would say, seemingly abstract theology. Uh, It's not abstract. Mm. There is no savior that can meet our need that's suitable for us. And that's why salvation is found in no one other than Christ alone.
0: Well, Stephen, thank you so much for helping us understand perhaps a little bit more deeply this beautiful doctrine that we have as Christians. Uh, We appreciate you taking the time.
1: Always a delight to speak about the glory of Christ.
0: That was Stephen Wellam on The Hypostatic Union. For more be sure to check out his book with Crossway, The Person of Christ: An Introduction. Pick up a print copy of the book for 30% off or get the ebook for 50% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org/plus. For more audio content like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing it with a friend and leaving us a review. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.